Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. So England have been dealt a hammer blow, some would say, many would say, before the Ashes with uh, spinner Jack Leach ruled out of the entire series with a stress fracture in his back. I'll get Harmy's reaction and uh, we'll discuss who might replace him in the side. England captain Ben Stokes' knee is again in the headlines. We'll discuss his fitness again, as well as looking back at the 10-wicket win over Ireland. Cricket writer Nathan Johns joins us from the Irish Times to discuss what's next for Ireland as they prepare for the World Cup qualifiers in Harare. We'll get the latest from Australia as David Warner reveals his plans to retire from Test cricket after the Pakistan series in January 2024. And we'll also hear his thoughts on Stuart Broad's comments about the last Ashes being void. And we'll end the show with any other business as Sue Redfern makes T20 Blast history and the Invisible Man continues to score runs for Warwickshire. That's Sam Hain, of course. Plenty to come over the next hour. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Tommy, I know that there'll be people who say, well, it could have been worse. It could have been Jimmy Anderson or Joe Root or Ben Stokes himself. But given the faith that the captain has invested in Jack, Jack Leach, he, I think he will regard it as a hammer blow, won't he? It's a massive, I think it's a big blow. I know we've talked about how Jack didn't bowl as well as he would like against Ireland. And I think we know now why he had a, obviously had a, a problem with his back. Where England go here is, I, I really manage. There's so many things going through my mind. It's like, do they go Will Jacks? Can he be a frontline spinner? I'm not so sure. Big ask for him to be number one spinner again in an Ashes series. Um, the boy's got talent. Gives you a lot more depth in the batting, which is one thing. Liam Dawson, safe pair of hands, um, experienced cricketer, but still, I think that's a big ask. Rian Ahmed, do you yes. go with Rian Ahmed? If yes, you go with Rian, that the problem you've got with that is there's so many problems with that. And as much as I really want Rian Ahmed to play, if Rian Ahmed plays, he can't play Mark Wood, and I think Mark Wood's more important than 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 Rian Ahmed. And why I say that is because if Stokes doesn't bowl then you're going in with two X-factor bowlers out of four. And if the ball's going around the park and the ball's not spinning and Australia get after the spinner, 
And obviously, if Mark, they're using Mark's person, it's flat. Having a three man attack, a three man seam attack, you probably would have to go Broad, Robinson, and Anderson. And I don't want to do that. I, I need I need some firepower, some pace because if Stokes doesn't bowl, that option I don't think is on the table. I would go I, honestly, and it, I'll get criticised for saying this. If I was Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum, I'd have a serious consideration and a, and a, a conversation with Mo and Ali, and say. Uh, it was different last time. You got dropped in 2019. It's a different England team. You're playing with a different England captain, with a different England mindset. You come back for five test matches because his bowling's still good enough. His batting is definitely still good enough. It's whether Moen is up for the fight. And Moen's talked about yeah, finding it hard to get himself going again. Moen probably doesn't want to play test cricket and that ship sailed. But of the options out there, from a frontline spinner's point of view, I think we're very, very threadbare. And I would have a conversation and see if I could get him from an experience point of view to come back because I think he, he does tick a lot of boxes. He is what, still one of the best bowlers, in the, uh, best all-round spin bowlers in the world and he's, on his day. It's just whether he, he wants to sort of fight of test match cricket again. Probably not, but I would, I would have a conversation with him. Palmy, when we first started recording the Cricket Collective over two years ago, you scoffed at me for the suggestion that Joe Root could be taken seriously as a spinner. Now then, if they played Rian Ahmed, and I know that you say that they can't play Mark Wood, but if Rian Ahmed is the attacking option who makes things happen and Stokes is happy for him to go 10 overs, none for 70, or 10 overs, three for 38, then could Joe Root do the defensive job? Could he give Stokes six or eight overs of defensive darting offspin? Yeah, absolutely, Manners. Joe Root has got it in him to do that. But England's game plan, if Ben Stokes says it all the time, we'll have a chase. If third innings, because England do like to, to sort of bat fourth innings and chase whatever totals on offer, if the third innings comes down to the fact that England are in the field for the best part of 80 to 100 overs and Joe Root's bowled 20 of them, you're asking Joe Root to go and bat for you. One of the best batsmen of all time. He's getting a little bit older. His body is not as flexible as it used to be. He's got a bad back. I think that's a big ask. I think you're asking one of your prize assets to do something that I wouldn't want to do consistently for five test matches. If I'm going to have to chase 250 to 300 in the, in the fourth innings, and my best batter, my, the, the man that's going to hold us all together, get 100 and everybody bat around him, if he's bowled 20 overs the day before, Oh, he might do it once, but I think consistently that would be a tough ask. So England have got some issues, big issues with Jack not not being involved. Um, but let's wait and see. It'll be interesting to see where they go. Harmy, um, much has been said and done already. The test match against has been well and truly dissected. So um, we'll just take your highlights. Let's start with what uh, will be your abiding memory. Um, a big fast bowler, taking wickets, hitting the deck hard off the back of his you know, ridiculous you know, run of injuries to get him to this point in Josh Dung. Stuart Broad making headlines like he was always going to make headlines. I said that before the Test match. You know, if There was no bet on England because England were going to be a short odds, but the biggest nap of that week was going to be Stuart Broad getting a fifer in one of the innings to say to the selectors, well, I know you're thinking of picking Robinson, Anderson and Wood for the first test match, but you've got to remember, in 160 test matches, I've got nearly 600 wickets and they've got an opening batter. 
who goes to sleep frightened of me in David Warner. So Stuart was never going to let us down on that on that front. And I'm over the moon to see two top water batters spend some time at the crease because manners we've been so critical of England have been criticised before the Stokes era and McCollum era about first innings runs, big runs, England not having the ability to, to rack up big runs. It did seem like, and I don't want to take any way, any sort of put any negativity towards Ireland. It did seem like a, a university against first class county, first game of the season, and the top order were always going to score runs. But it's great to get Duckett and Pope, as well as Crawley got a little bit, and obviously Root spent some time at the crease. We had two batters that spent a lot of time at the crease. And at that time, when Duckett and Pope were going strong, the wicket went flat. The sun was out. The ball was doing very, very little. And we've seen when the ball got changed, the island bowlers became more of a threat. That might happen against Australia. And if it does happen, we've got batters who cashed in and getting off to a good start in the summer. So all in all, great. It was fantastic. I think it's great for the region that England played Ireland in a test match. And it was fantastic to see Ireland put up a great fight second innings. Um, but all in all, did we learn anything? Not much. Did we unearth the talent? Yes, in possibly an, an option in Josh Tong. Um, and we racked up a big score, won the game, day off in in, uh, in the process. And I think we're all like, I think everybody around the world is like Christmas Eve. We're waiting for June 16, get the World Test Championship out of the way. And we can't wait for the Ashes to start. See, Harmy, I know that you say that it looked like county against the university team from years gone by. Um, but I just think that the England team of two years ago, with all respect to those players, might well have been pretty tentative. I mean, we're talking about yeah. slightly better than university players, aren't we? I mean, you know, Mark Adair and, and uh, you know, that, that that's a, it's a decent bowling lineup. And I, I think that they might have pushed and prodded and, and been cautious and, you know, scored at at three and over, not five or six and over. And I, 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 yes, I mean, England made Ireland look poor. I think they made them look poorer than they actually are. And I think it was a really viciously clinical performance by England. And I, you know, I'm not suggesting they're going to do that against Australia, but it was indicative of the new era. I think that performance. Absolutely, 100%. And I think that's why it is so positive. You know, we could have been in a position where, like two years ago when Jack Leach got us out of a huge hole when we played against Ireland. It was on a different pitch, different type of pitch. Well, you say they are better than university cricketers, but England are better than a lot of first-class county players that go into it. So I think that was what I was meaning on, on, on that front. They bullied them in the first innings, which was great to see, and that's what England have got to do. So Ireland, it's not a case of looking at Ireland in a negative way and say, oh, it's just Ireland. England have done that in New Zealand. They've done it to South Africa. They've done it to Pakistan, in Pakistan. They've done it to New Zealand, in New Zealand, when they ended up making a contest of it in the end. And, and obviously it was a great con- two test matches and the draw. So England are on the right rung. There are still negative points. The spinner worries me. Would Nathan Lyon bowl 20 overs, one for 90 in on a third day pitch against Ireland with using the slope the way they the way it did. I think you'd have bowled a lot better than that. England looked as though they were a little bit flat. And that possibly is because they were so far ahead of the game. 
in that middle period where Adair and um, McBrien were going very, very well. All these things that come into it. Yes, you can look that in a negative way. Would that have happened in the ashes? Heat of the battle, crowd going, different type of attack? Possibly not. But still, there are still alarm bells. As much as it was a positive exercise for England, Ben Stokes got out of it what he did needed to get out of it. And he got out of it perfectly by not having to bat, not having to bowl and just had to manoeuvre the field. So that was a, a good exercise from a Stokes point of view. All in all, I think England are ready. You know, when it goes flat in the second innings like that and the ball gets soft and you always begin to wonder, well, what would a leg spinner do here? What would Absolutely. a really quick bowler do? You know, I, I couldn't help. Uh, I mean, I was I, I wasn't I couldn't watch it live, but um, I, I was following it live and, and watching highlights. But uh, the thought just comes to your mind, what would a Rian Ahmed or a Mark Wood have done um, and what difference would they have made? But but I want to talk to you about the captain because, you know, it's it just seems that I, I rewind three or four years ago when Ben Stokes missed the Ashes series in Australia and he was going through all that trauma in his personal life. And I, just, I think he's become, you know, sort of healthily obsessed with the Ashes now. And mm-hmm. you, you and I said, what, what was it? Was it three or four months ago? We said well, maybe he's got a thousand overs left in him as a bowler. Yeah. And he hasn't used up many since then, but I reckon he's down to about 500. And he just seems to be absolutely obsessed with playing in the Ashes. I know that he didn't bowl barely a delivery when he was with the Chennai Super Kings in the IPL. And he is going to have to be the fourth seamer, isn't he, Um, during the Ashes? And it just seems like ordinarily we would be saying he's jeopardising his career. It seems to me that his attitude is, to hell with it. I am prepared to jeopardise my career to win the Ashes. I don't think he's for one minute thinking on a personal note. His mantra is there's no personal gains in anything we do. It's all about we. It's all about the team. I'm not getting fed up on this, the Ben Stokes knee watch or the Ben Stokes injury watch. I think Ben Stokes is at a position with his knee, what he was 12 months ago, leading into the summer when he got the job. I think Ben Stokes has got himself in a position to go like he did last summer. I bowl whenever I need to bowl. My team will need me to bowl and I will bowl. I will bite my tongue. I will wince as much as you want, but I will bowl the relevant overs that I need to bowl, whether it's I don't bowl for a whole test match. I don't bowl for a whole day. And then I come and have to bowl bounces in the middle session and bowl 12 overs in a row to get me team in a position that's what I'll do. I think England, I think we've got to forget about Ben Stokes's knee for a second. I think well, the whole package of Ben Stokes is so important and so valuable to us. I've been saying for two years, he's got to protect himself. He's got to look after himself. And the reason why I've been saying it is to get to this point. 16th of June, five test match against Australia. Ben Stokes will be in a position to play against Australia and what he team needs him to do. I've got no doubt of that whatsoever. I trust the kid like you'd not believe. If he says he's fit to play, off you go, Ben, and get on with it. Now, he's not somebody who is going to bowl six overs here, six overs there, to fill in for the you know for the bowlers to get tired when the bowlers get tired. He is some pack of he's always been some sort of impact bowler. So for me, it was amazing. I was throwing things, I was actually throwing things at my iPad. It wasn't at the TV to the day. When he took a catch, 
he bent his knee and he winced a little bit. All of a sudden, we were losing the ashes because Ben Stokes has winced the knee. Look, we all move in different ways. We all have little sore points in our bodies. His is his knee. I've got no doubt that Ben Stokes, from first test match to the last test match, will give everything he has inside his body to try and win the Ashes for his team. Whether it's bowling a whole session, whether it's bowling an eight-over spell, whether it's fielding an extra cover up mid-on mid and mid-off. No problem whatsoever. Because if he was trying to protect it, he'd be hit slip, out the way, not a problem. He's still in the cover. He still moved quite well. For me, I think we've got to get away from the Ben Stokes knee watch. We are distracting from a lot of things that need to be talked about in that team. Is our bowling attack going to be good enough? Are we good enough at the top order? Get away from Ben Stokes' knee. Ben Stokes will be fine. He will captain the first test match. He will captain the last test match. And he will do everything he did last summer when he was unbelievable. And he will be the same this summer. I think he's probably in a similar position to what he was then to where he is now. His knee still hurts. His knee's going to be painful. His knee's going to be restricted in him. But he will get himself in a position to get his team, get himself through for his team. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison as we continue to look back at England's 10-wicket win over Ireland at Lords. And uh, I'm delighted to say that we're joined now, as promised, by Nathan Johns from uh, the Irish Times. Um, Nathan, thanks so much for your time. First of all, can you just, just give us the reaction at home on you know what's a, a very special and a very rare occasion, play, Ireland playing a Test match at Lords? Well, I think they were, everyone was very happy for day three, put it that way. Uh, it, it threatened to, it was, well, it was already ugly, but it threatened to get uh, a hell of a lot uglier, if not for the the bats finally uh, turning up. I think expectations were obviously low coming into this. Uh, three tests in Asia recently, all defeats. And we all know how long it takes teams historically to to win test matches uh, once they finally get out, get membership I think New Zealand it took them 26 years or something like that uh, so nobody had particularly high expectations particularly as England are doing what England are doing at the minute but obviously you know the test at Lords is a test at Lords and the occasion and the players are delighted to be there the fans are delighted to be there uh, strange timing given that it's a week before they fly to Zimbabwe for 50 over World Cup qualifiers but uh, all in all a test at Lords is not to be sniffed at and the fact that it did go well into the third day given what happened on day one or two I think uh, people were reasonably happy that it ended up like that. Yeah, Nathan, do you think it was a, obviously it was a missed opportunity the bat first innings. Do you think there's any nerves playing at Lord's home of cricket, the size of the, the sort of ground, the crowd and everything? Because there was a decent crowd there as well. Um, I don't see how there can't be nerves. The professional athletes, they care for what they do. There's always going to be nerves. I wouldn't necessarily blame that. I think it's experience more so than, than, than anything else or lack of it. I mean, some of the dismissals were just, players falling into traps. I mean, guys getting caught at gully, flashing at wide ones or tucking ones off their hips to to, to a leg slip, just things that they don't come across a lot because they don't play play any high standard or red ball cricket consistently given there's no domestic first-class structure and they haven't played test cricket at, before, before the recent Asia test before since 2019. So no, undoubtedly they were nervous, but I think, you know, it was a free hit for them. It's, it's not, it was a one-off test. It's no, you know, they're not in the World Test Championship or anything like that. They just said beforehand it wasn't a pinnacle event, famously, which ruffled a few feathers. So undoubtedly nervous, but I wouldn't necessarily blame that for what happened on day one. Nathan, I'm infamous for asking two questions in one, so please forgive me. <laughs> you mentioned um, the first-class structure in Ireland. I wouldn't mind you 
to just give us a little um, more background on that and, and whether it can be expected to grow. And then and then <laughs> here's the two questions in one. Ireland, uh, it used to be, you know, they played every sort of three or four months in one format or the other and sometimes six months. But Ireland seems to have been playing a lot of international cricket now over the last sort of year. I mean, just had your busiest uh, home summer last year. And and so the World Cup qualifiers, um, you may not have had high hopes for Lords, but surely there must be some realistic optimism to qualify for the actual World Cup in, in Harare. Of course, there's a lot of optimism. And one day international cricket is Ireland's strongest format at the minute. Uh, you know, they arguably shouldn't be in those qualifiers. They've lost a lot of close games during the Super League from winning positions. Uh you know, most recently, you know, bang, the the Bangladesh series. Granted, they needed to win that three 0 but you know they they lost a bit of a thriller there. They lost two games last year to New Zealand by one was by one run, one was by one wicket, and equally, I think playing against Afghanistan, the Dutch, and Zimbabwe, they took twenty five out of a possible ninety points against sides that are in their ballpark, so to speak. And so that was a really disappointing return, and again, a couple of close defeats in there. So. They're playing really good ODI cricket in the last two years and they've really prioritised white ball cricket. They made a strategic decision to to prioritise it and and really um, go with their schedule, uh, white ball heavy diet because they weren't playing any red ball at home and they realised the, the financial value of reaching World Cups and doing well in World Cups, which they did in the in the T20 World Cup uh, last year. So there's there's a lot of hope. I mean, it's a, it's a brutal cutthroat tournament, this qualifier um, you know, Sri Lanka are there uh, to go through. Sri Lanka are there. West Indies are there. They're obviously, you know, Ireland don't fear the West Indies, but they're still the West Indies. Uh, and Zimbabwe are pretty formidable uh, on home conditions. Ireland lost a series to them in Zimbabwe back in January. Um, the Dutch and the Scots are there, but I think a lot of people are counting them out due to the no lack of county players. Um, a few people are think, thinking someone like Nepal might spring an upset or two, which would be interesting. I haven't watched a lot of Nepal, but a few people who I know who have are very confident. So it's they're confident to qualifying to answer your question, but I wouldn't be surprised if they do or if they don't, just because that tournament is is so cutthroat. Um, and I do answer your first question, if, if I remember what it was, uh, around the first-class structure. That ties back into what I said earlier. 2019 was the last time they had a, a three-day schedule domestically. Um, they would have had three three teams playing three-day cricket, regular three-day cricket at home. And then COVID hit and the income, you know, nobody was playing them really uh, for a while. The, 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 it, so it all went that was that direction. And they had a strategic meeting that said, right, when we do get cricket back, we're just going to have to prioritise white ball cricket and a lot of cricket initially away from home. And then once the money starts coming back in, uh, cricket at home. And like you said, they played their most amount of T20 games ever in a single calendar year last year. And all of a sudden playing regular T20 cricket, they got into some good form. Guys figured out their role on the side and they went on a run at the World Cup, including beating the West Indies and beating England. So strategically, white ball have actually done quite well over the last few years. The problem is they've done it at the expense of red ball because of COVID. They just, they can't afford to, to play three-day games because they're really expensive to to play. And, they, and as a result of that, they said no test cricket. And this year it's come back and they're hoping that uh, first class cricket comes back uh, in 2024. Yeah, I just want to talk to you about. Um, I'm going. I'm going to apologise to our producer here because I'm going off the off the um, off the script. But I want to, I want to talk about first class cricket in Ireland because me and Manners have been talking with a lot of the emerging nations and the new nations that are coming around. You mentioned Scotland. You mentioned the Netherlands. I've said all week that it's great for the region that England play Ireland in a Test match. In first class cricket in this country, there was a high performance review. Right, cool. Six teams, cut six teams. But I want to. I've said I want to go the other way, and I'd rather bring Ireland, the Netherlands, and Scotland into it. 
Do you see, has there any, been any talk that Ireland have a first-class cricket county, uh, cricket cricket role in the English county system? So if you go with them three teams, you'd have 21 first-class cl- like first teams in that, and then you can have your three-day stuff in Ireland, but they also represent Ireland in our first-class system. Do you think ECB, ICC could play a role in enhancing the first-class system in Ireland and helping Ireland in the test game because that, that's what should be done with cricket in this region? Yeah, there's a couple of ways of, of answering that. I think on one hand, Cricket Ireland would love that because they get games in England and you know, that might mean they don't have to necessarily spend the money that they haven't been able to spend in, in recent years on, on domestic stuff or at least as much domestic things. They did try, because remember, obviously, guys who were playing this week, a few of them, Sterling, Balberni, etc., would have played at Middlesex before Ireland got full membership. When Ireland got full membership and they are they couldn't play county cricket because they were overseas players anymore and teams wouldn't spend overseas slots on them. Cricket Ireland did lobby the ECB to kind of look just just let them still play. It's 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 not that make an exception for them. The ECB were fully within their rights to say, well, it's not in our interest to to prop up Irish cricket. Um, so the ECB have not on that your exact suggestion, but on similar ones said in the past, it's. Look, it's not our role to develop your your structure and to develop your players. You know, you can call that harsh, you can call that brutal. I'm sure some people will. But since then, Cricket Ireland did say, right, well, it's now up to us to develop our own structure and to kind of learn how to stand on our own two feet in, in developing players for, for red ball cricket. And um, they've done a good job of developing players for white ball cricket. It has to be said, you know, young players like Little and Tector, etc. So as much as I'm sure Cricket Ireland would love financially to be relying on the ECB and playing as much first-class cricket through that system, I think they do value, or at least they're saying they are, trying to get to a stage where they're not relying on the ECB anymore. At least that's that's what they've said publicly, and granted they haven't got there yet, but you know they might be getting some more money from the ICC, so maybe they will be able to soon. Nathan, uh, we had, as you may or may not know, uh, live ball-by-ball commentary on all of Ireland's games last summer. And I cannot believe that we didn't get you on air. I've learned more in the last <clears> five <throat> or six minutes about Irish cricket than I thought I, I would ever know. Thank you so much, so much for your time, your insight, your knowledge. But it's been absolutely brilliant and enlightening. And if you're willing, it won't be the last time we'll have you on. <laughs> absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Nathan Johns, a brilliant Irish Times cricket writer. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and the former number one bowler in the world, Steve Harmison. Next up, we'll turn our attention to the Ashes, and Robert Crash Craddock from the Brisbane Courier-Mail joins us to discuss the news that Australian batter David Warner has scripted his own retirement from Test cricket <laughs> at the end of their next international summer. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. Um, if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast on your following on feed, now available via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. Crash, thanks a lot for having us. Now, you may have detected a, an element of cynicism in my in the tone of my voice there. Um, I, I don't think that fairy tales do very often happen in sport. And it it does seem, well, dare I say, um, a touch presumptuous, bordering on arrogant, that uh, David Warner would assume that he would be required to opening the batting for Australia up until the end of next summer. Yes, Manners, I I smile through your delivery there because I know what your thoughts are. You're thinking, how dare he, when he's averaging nine or something in the last Ashes series, think he's going to get that far. Look, Fair assumption. I would say this. David Warner is trying to get himself up for the challenge. He can't go into the World Test Championship Wednesday thinking every test is my last year. He's got to set himself a goal. Now, two things will happen, Manners. It will mean no difference at all to the selectors during the Ashes. If he's out of form, he will go. He will not reach his goal. That happens many times. David Byrne wanted a farewell Ashes tour. He didn't get it. Doug Walters wanted a farewell Ashes tour. He didn't get it. Ian Healy wanted to play his last test in Brisbane. They said no, but it's nothing wrong with having that ambition. If he gets back to Australia, he has three tests left before he retires in Sydney. And the one thing I don't think will happen, they won't retire him during that series. He either gets to Pakistan and will play through it, or he doesn't. But I think it'll be form will just dictate everything because Australia's cause is far greater than his. And Crash, about about that, you mentioned that you said the selectors you know, won't look at it as a, a farewell tour and if the feelers are the right to drop him, they'll drop him. Is it simply David Warner trying to get himself motivated for a fight? Is it simply David Warner trying to make a headline to say, right, you might want to, I am the pantomime villain, everybody hates me. And is it is it this all about David Warner? Do you think he's, you know, that conversation has gone with the selectors and his teammates to say he's going to retire next year? Yeah, no, it's all about him. And, and I think that he's a working class boy from the uh, a very humble area of Sydney and all his career has been based on this rather gnarled, I'll prove you wrong style of mentality, Steve. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong either. It has driven him to an extraordinary test career. Whatever you think of him, for an opening batsman to play all three forms of the game, average 47 over 100 tests, when he was considered just a T20 player. I mean, wow. But he'll have two tests in England. If he fails in the first two, he's guaranteed two tests. He will start the Ashes, I promise you. But beyond that, he has to prove himself. His case, Steve, is softened by the fact that there's not a lot behind him. Marcus Harris averages in the mid-20s. 
and Matt Renshaw is coming back from a long break from Test cricket. It's not as if you got Michael Slater or Matthew Hayden slamming the door down. So, but it's interesting. We will know quickly. It will stand out, I do believe. Crash, turning our attention to the World Test Championship and obviously the Ashes. I mean, I always thought Josh Hazel would play would play a massive role in the outcome of the Ashes. And it just seems, maybe it's just the timing, but it does seem like Australia are taking the Ashes a bit more seriously than the World Test Championship. It's like, uh, Josh, uh, just sit out this one. Um, it's only the final of the World Test Championship, but we need you for the Ashes. I mean, how is preparation looking from your end? Yeah, Manners, I don't quite agree with you because here's the thing. This generation of bowlers have played together for 10 years and they've just lacked that defining moment. You you know how every great team needs a great signature moment. Like they did not beat India in India. India have won the last four series against Australia. They have not won the World Test Championship. They have not won the Ashes in England. So this, this is the most important two months of their cricketing lives. It will define their legacy. So they want both. They really want this world championship. Uh, Hazelwood's only played two tests in, I think, he's never played more than two tests in about the last six series. So, And he bowled the house down on Saturday, but it must have pulled up a bit sore because the great net watcher, Bharat Sundarajan, said he's bowling so well, I'm just certain he's going to be in that team Wednesday. And then he wasn't. Michael Neeson was called into the squad. Scott Boland will play in the game. And and I'm going to put this question to you and Steve Harmison. Scott Boland bowls this magnificently accurate length which she can plough and plough and plough. Does that mean he will be a sensation in England or that a great target for baseball where they'll go, we know where you're bowling, champ. We're coming after you. I think they'll go after him, first and foremost. I think... Scott Boland bowled fantastically well in Australia when he he sort of set the set the world alight when he first came in. But I think that that's Tyler Bowler in English conditions where the ball probably won't bounce as much. I think that will will I think light up the eyes of of, of the England batters because, like you said, he is so accurate. They know where it's going, and you look at. The way I think it was Joe Root, second ball, Tim Southey in, in New Zealand, somebody like that who hits the deck in the same spot all the time. England have knocked the, the good ball, the, the ball, the bowlers that bowl good lengths. England have knocked them off a good length and put pressure on them. And it's what you come back with. So the, the challenge for the Australian bowlers, and this is this is the thing for me, Crash, with all the sides that have played England under Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes. They go, they go into the into the series and go. They'll not do it against us. They won't do it against us. Didn't do it against. They'll not do it against a top quality pace attack like South Africa, Pakistan in Pakistan. And I think it's the sides that adapt quickly will be the ones that can live with Australia, with England. The ones that don't adapt quickly, who have got a little bit of an ego and arrogance, who go, Nah, they won't do it to us. Not Common, Stark, Hazelwood, Boland. They won't do it to us. And then all of a sudden, you're a test match down, chasing seven and over, thinking, what on earth are we going to do with this now? So I think England will target Boland because he is that, I think he's that accurate, along with Cummins, along with Hazelwood, and it's what they come back with. That will be, the, the I think, the big challenge. Great stuff. Interesting. What, I'm so interested by that showdown, Steve. I really am. So what do you think, Crash, will be Australia's 1-11 to when it comes to June 16th? Well, I think it'll be the same for this test. David Warner will open the batting with Kawaja. 
And then, of course, a familiar middle order where you'll have the likes of Travis Head, Marnus Labuschagne, Steve Smith, and Cameron Green, who I think could be the man of the series, the man no one is talking about, all right? But uh, – and then, of course, comes Alex Carey and, and, and the, the three bowlers, Pat Cummins. Well, this is where it gets interesting. Mitchell Stark and I think Michael Neeser at some point might force his way in ahead of Boland or ahead of Hazelwood if he's not fit. Then, of course, Nathan Lyon. And, and with Jack Leach out, Gee, I mean, I think that's a huge blow. And I'm staggered that behind Leach, there's no decent spinners. Like, there's how many counties? 17? Like yeah, 18 counties. 18 counties and no, you know, I, I've felt this for many years. Why is there no not more spinners in England? But that'll be the Australian 11. If there's an underrated player, Steve, I'll, it's simply this for me. And I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts. I reckon for 100 years, Australia has underestimated the common swing bowler. Terry mm. Alderman took 83 wickets and two Ashes tours. Could Michael Michael Nisa be the new Terry Alderman? If Terry Alderman was playing now, would he get in the team? I'm not sure that he would because we love our macho men and, and all that. And that's fine. They'd have done a great job. But we we... we we see the speedometer going to 131. We think, oh, no, that's that's not right. But they get wickets in England. They do, and Michael Nisa, so far, so good from first-class point of view with Glamorgan. He has, like you said, he's knocking the door down. You know, you made, you mentioned Slater and Hayden knocking the door down at the opening battle. There's nobody up the top, but Michael no. Nisa is definitely knocking the door down, and he's bowled brilliantly so far this summer. Um, has, he got, has he got it in him? That's my question. The amount of energy he's exerted himself from a bowling point of view in the first six championship games in England would it be a big ask to go into five test matches in six weeks with a bowling that he's done. But it's going to be fascinating to see and I can't wait for the Ashes to start. Yeah, I, I don't think it... I can see Nisa playing a couple of tests and he's about a number seven batsman. He's got. He's about a wicket keeper when it comes to batting. So you could even put... Uh, if there's something happened to Green, you could even put uh, Alex Carey at, at number six. But I have to say, Australia will mix and match. The schedule's too tight for them to even think about playing the same team. There will be bowlers rested and uh, other bowlers, you know, uh, coming in and out of the team. Cummins. Will Pat Cummins, the captain, play every test? I don't know. I do not think that is a certainty at all. So, But I'm also interested in England's attack because... The instant I heard that Ben Stokes' his knee isn't real flash, the ramifications flow up the order and down the order to the bowling attack and everything, don't they? And I reckon England have to choose an unusually balanced attack, particularly with uh, Leach out. Maybe, do you think Root will be their number one spinner, Steve? No, they have to bring a spinner in. They, they can't, they've got to bring a spinner in. So whether it be Will Jacks, whether it be um, Rayan Ahmed, I think England have to have a frontline spinner. You are asking far too much of Joe Root's body to make him bowl 25 overs and innings and bat at number four and expect him to get double hundreds or 150 for England to have any chance. So there's some massive question marks on both sides at this minute in time. And, you know, who would be a, who would be a selector at the minute? But Leach is a blow, but I think they bring in another spinner to cover Jack Leach rather than try and um, just fill it in with what they've got in, in the group. Right. Uh, Hami, I just need to ask you um, whether David, whether you think David Warner is misreading the room. It's all very well uh, planning the fairy tale departure. 
from international cricket. And um, I mean, he's going a long way ahead here. He's saying, uh, yep, I'll carry on playing test cricket until we play Pakistan next year. And then I'll step away from international cricket altogether after the next T20 World Cup. I mean, boy, oh boy, is he looking a long way ahead for a 36-year-old. He could be dropped after two test matches for the Ashes. He's only been included for the first two tests. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? He comes out with some beauties. I just wonder if this announcement from David Warner was a bit like the Graham Swan one, as one or two others, that he said it to the media before telling his teammates, his captain and the chairman of selectors, because I'm sure George Bailey's read these comments and gone, really? There's, there's 10 test matches between that and now, and you're only guaranteed to play the next two. So talked about it with John Norman on the following on feed on at the end of the test match when Davey made his comments the other day. And he has been great for cricket. Other than that stupid moment in, in South Africa, Warner's been fantastic for cricket. He's the pantomime villain that everybody loves to hit. His career and it numbers in itself, from a batting point of view, has stacks up with, with anybody. He's been a really top, top performer. Everybody loves to hit him. We all love that in sport. He's not just in cricket. We all love that colourful character that, comes out with stupid things, It comes out aggressively, wants to put his name in lights and has a fight with everybody, even including his own teammates. But unfortunately, I'm not saying he's not read the room right, but there's a long way between now and Pakistan getting to, to Sydney and walking off with a big fanfare. The one thing I will say that on Manners, when champions do decide to go, and, and I think this is a good thing from David Warner, what he's doing for himself. This is himself putting himself under pressure. It's all well and good saying I'm going to walk off into the sunset in however many test matches time, seven or eight test matches time in Sydney. You've got to get there first. And I think this might be him, Gene himself up, saying, right, no matter what you throw at me, whether you throw Anderson, you throw Broad, you throw Wood. I'm a man of 100 test matches. I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be there in Sydney. And I think that's the most important thing to come out of that that interview, which was which I thought was quite enlightening. He he believes he's going to get there. And, and and who would sort of knock him for doing that? And who would blame him if he doesn't get there? Because the way he's dealt with adversity in his career, the way he's dealt with pressure in his career has been magnificent. And he's had loads of pressure on his career. He's had a hell of a lot of adversity in his career. He's had a lot of people try to ridicule and have a go at him. And he's still come back for more. And that's the testament of the career that he's had. You know, David Warner, apart from a stupid moment in South Africa, has had a fantastic international cricket career. And you wouldn't you know, blame him for trying to go out on the top. But you know what? One one thought of me thinks, you know what? If he does go that way and he does get to Pakistan, Australia win the Ashes. Because if he's out of the test team in two test matches, like Australia possibly could could leave him out after two test matches, that means England have got a great chance of winning the Ashes because they've they've knocked over Australia's top order. So it, 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 it's as simple as that for me. If David Warner goes out against Pakistan, it means he's had a good summer here. And if he has a good summer here, puts England, Australia in a great chance of winning. If he finishes it, possibly Lords, if he finishes it, possibly Leeds, because he's had an absolute shocker, then England have got a great chance to win the Test match. So, again, we're talking about Davy Warner, and that, for me, is why he is the pantomime villain we all love about the game of cricket. You're right, Harmy. Yeah, I think it's extraordinarily arrogant to plan 
your departure from Test cricket on your home ground in a fairy tale departure, you know, six months time. And do you really think it was a silly moment at Newlands in Cape Town? I thought but it was then, a stupid moment, a silly moment, and a one that probably should have ended his career. A it, moment? Was it a moment? Was it one moment? No, I don't think it was probably one moment. It was the one moment he got caught. Ah. I think that's the difference. It wasn't a moment because he's probably done it before. But for me, why I say it was a moment, it was a stupid moment he got caught. It was a stupid moment that changed the game. And it was something, it is something, no matter what he goes on to do in his illustrious career and he walks off in the sunset, whenever he does, unfortunately, David Warner will always be remembered for that fateful day in South Africa. I thought Michael Nisa being called into the Australian squad, no surprise there. None whatsoever. I think it's the right thing. It could have been Sean Abbott, but Nisa's bowled lovely so far. Batted well as well. Gives them the options. He's... He's well-educated in English conditions. He understands English conditions. He's been over here for a long period of time and done well. I think it was the right call from Australia to bring him into the squad. And also, Josh Hazelwood's not going to play in the World Test Championship, but I've seen videos of him bowling in the nets. He looks as though he's in decent working order. So I just wonder if Hazelwood's not playing in that World Test Championship because of the structure of the Ashes possibly they're keeping him for that that point because you look at Hazelwood, look at sort of Glenn McGrath type bowler, so good in this in, in English conditions. I think it's a good step for Australia not to play Hazelwood against India and keeping him keeping him ready for England. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and two-time County Championship winner Steve Harmison. Okay, um, Harmy, let's hear straight away that uh, interview David Warner did. Um, and this is... Here's a good one. Um, his thoughts on Stuart Broad's comments about the last Ashes series being void. He's entitled to that opinion. Um, we all played through COVID. We all had the same conditions. I think he said something about no one played a test match away. But in the day, we still spent you know close to 90, 100 days away from our home bed. You know, he might get a little bit homesick and he can't cope with playing under those circumstances. But we've all played Ashes series away. It's the same irrelevant of what you got. You know, you had a golf course there. That's what they do. They like playing golf. They had a great resort. We had the same facilities. So, yeah, look, that's his opinion. For me, it's, I don't worry about that stuff. So, <laughs> He's a good bristler, isn't he? He is. And like was said in Wax Lyrics about him, his character and the pantomime villain he was before. I'm not saying I can see both sides of it because I brought his, you know, as a few of the England players have said how tough it was in COVID. I stick up for the England players because England did go and play away from home. I think England played 16 test matches during COVID, where Australia played four and they were all at home, or four before the Ashes, and they were all at home. Um, but the conditions, I think England possibly got the better conditions when they were the Ashes is on in Australia. They got what they wanted, and I think rightly so, when you're going as a visiting team into that environment. At the end of the day, it's not a null and void competition because... When you go out there, you cross the white line, you play the game, um, and the best team wins, no matter what the environment is. And unfortunately, England weren't good enough during that side. And England didn't lose this, this series because I, I don't think there were it was so much they weren't good enough. COVID didn't mean pick five seamers when they should have picked Jack Leach. COVID didn't mean Broad Anderson not playing early on in the series. England's success under McCullum and Stokes has largely been down to the fact that they've been very good in selection and picking the right team. 
England lost the Ashes over there because Australia were better than them and England picked the wrong team the majority of the time. They had an absolute brain brain fade and shocker during that Ashes series on selection, on performance, and that's why Australia won, not because of anything else, I don't think. Right. Um, let's move on to the uh, the blast, shall we, Harmy, quickly. Um, two guys not involved um, with England, one of whom has had a taste of uh, of international cricket, um, several tastes, and James Vince, his last four T20 games, he scored 350 runs for one dismissal um, in four games, averaging 350. And our favourite, well, my favourite man, um, the invisible man, Sam Hain, 97 not out for Birmingham. Extraordinary performances. I mean, you can you can pick him in every single game, and there are so many stories, aren't there? But uh, James Vince and, and Sam Hain, Vince, as I said, has been recognised and has been given a chance. Sam Hain remains opaque to the national selectors. <laughs> yeah, you've been very kind there towards the national selectors, I think. Um, I think Vince is... I think that we'll start with James Vince. I think James Vince has seen there possibly could be an opening at the top of the order in white ball cricket. Uh, David Milan's done the same. He thinks there must be because he's gone up there as well. At Yorkshire, where I'm now talking about Jason Roy, you know, relinquishing his contract. Is he going to get picked for the World Cup squad? I know it's 50 overs, but James Vince has gone in first for Hampshire and he's got runs like you'd not believe. Sam Hain, he's a little bit younger, obviously untried, untested. I don't know why the selectors haven't really... And we keep going, and the one glaring chance to pick him was Bangladesh um, in the winter, but they still didn't pick him. But he keeps knocking on that door, and I keep referring back to the James Hildreth of my of yesteryear and uh, my time. So they are still performing. They keep going, and I think England eventually, if they get into trouble, they possibly could go with James Vince but I still don't understand why Sam Hearn hasn't come into the reckoning of of, of white ball squads um, when England were exp- exper- experimenting. problem you've got now for me, Manners, is now there's no experimenting. We've got a 50-over World Cup coming around the corner, and if we've got a squad of 21 players that we've been picking from to get down to 15, James Vince has got a chance to be in that, but Sam Hearn probably hasn't because... He hasn't had a chance. And it's a bit like why you play Josh Tung against Ireland because you don't want to give him his debut in a in a, in a an Ashes series. Well, do you really want to be going into a, a World Cup and leading into a World Cup with a player who hasn't played international cricket? So I think, unfortunately for Sam, I think he might have to wait until after the World Cup if he gets international wrecking. Right. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, so <laughs> I'll... Chuck a couple of last words at you. Darren Sammy, who's the new West Indies white ball coach, has appointed Carl Hooper, Floyd Reefer, and James Franklin as his assistant coaches. It's sort of like Ryder Cup, isn't it? Uh, the captain appointing three assistant coaches. But I didn't see James Franklin coming. I don't know what that connection is there between him and Darren Sammy. And um, as much as you're fed up with Ben Stokes' knee watch, I'm fed up with women's cricket, women's appointments in the men's game, uh, sort of being regarded as breaking news. I mean, Sue Redfern has been a a brilliant umpire for for many, many years. And it makes perfect sense to me that women naturally make excellent umpires. 
uh, and so well done Sue Redfern, but you know, may there be many women to follow. I hope so, Manners. I really do. Um, I'm with you on the the Floyd Reefer, Carl Hooper, then James Franklin. I don't know whether James Franklin comes in. I could understand if they were going to New Zealand to play the qualifiers, but they're going to Harare, and I'm not sure the connection of middle of Africa with Floyd Reefer, Hooper, or or James Franklin. But Darren Sammy wants his team around him, so good luck to him on that front. Frankie's a good man. Yeah, he did a good job at Durham. Yeah, even though at the end it didn't work out as well as he would probably like, but he did a really good job, a rebuilding job for Durham. And Sue Redfern, yeah, she, same set of eyes, sees the game the same set of game weight, same weight. I get annoyed when why you know, seeing, especially at the top level, especially at top level in sport, rugby, football, cricket, whatever. When a referee, oh, you can't referee that game because you're too, you live too close to where you to where the game's at. You know, you live too close to, you know, the, the two teams or you have a connection with the other team. The game has got so much technology. The game has got so many eyes on it around the world. They are professional people. Sue Redfern will do a fantastic job in the men's game because she's a professional umpire. And the more that that exposure that Sue gets will inspire young girls and women to be umpires. So I think she'll do a great job and more the better, to be fair. Absolutely right. Well, um, can't wait uh, for Edge Baston. But for now, you've been listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmonson. And of course, if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, now available as always via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back at the same time next week and we'll hear exclusively from the England duo Stuart Broad and Ollie Pope. But for now, this has been the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.